Let's bow together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have to uh, come before you, to hear your word, to um, worship together. And I pray as we look into your word, you would grant us wisdom and understanding, that you would work in our hearts that which is pleasing, Lord God. I pray for uh, this time that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had uh, I was listening to a, a friend speaking about a ministry uh, that uh, re- does renewal, renews churches, uh, basically brings about renewal, and they have uh, theological ways to do so. Um, but as we've been seeing in the book of Nehemiah, renewal or revival comes through the word of God working in the hearts of those that God has been disciplining and are responding. We see in the, with, the, with the Jews in the land that God had allowed his great disciplinary hand to fall on them, and they recognized that all those things, after hearing the word of God, had come upon them because of their sin. And with that, the word of God brought about a renewal in their heart by the Spirit of God, where the people of God desired to obey the God of the word. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to talk about repentance and how we can know if we've truly repented. You know, when people talk about repentance and confession, you know, we, we, we live in that sphere as believers because we sin. Um, but how do we know that we've truly, truly repented? You know, the heart is deceitful. And above all else, right, when we know, we can deceive ourselves. Uh, when David uh, was confessing his sin in Psalm 51, he talked about the reality that he wasn't going to be deceitful anymore in a sense. Uh, we see that. And so the reality for us is that we can deceive ourselves and think we're repent when we're really not. And so how can we know if we have truly repented? Well, we're going to continue to look at the fruit that should be evident in the lives of those who are confessing and repenting. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 39. And if you've been with us for the book of Nehemiah, you'll know that we've not only seen the rebuilding of the walls and how God uh, helped Nehemiah and the people to accomplish that in 52 days, in spite of all the satanic and evil opposition through men, and how the Lord brought about uh, their uh, success in that. And we've seen also that the people had their spiritual walls torn down, that their, their lives were in a shambles, that they were living in the context of disobedience. And we were looking at how to be rebuilt spiritually. And we saw that there needed to be a desire to hear the word of God. There needed to be a desire. And that desire comes often when one is disciplined and starts to respond to the Lord. There's a desire to hear the word of God, and they called for Ezra, and they heard the word, and they responded, and they started to obey, and then they fully acknowledged their sins. We see that, that they acknowledged this is the reason why we are in this place in the land right now with the, with the Persians uh, over us. We're slaves here in our own land, the land you gave us. This is why, because of our sin and our father's sin. And they acknowledged it, and we saw that that brought about then uh, the fruit of of true repentance, which was a decision to stop sinning and to start doing what is right in relationship to the areas in which they had been sinning. 
Now you might remember in the end of chapter 10, we have this uh, statement in verse 38. Now because, actually end of chapter 9, we have a statement. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing and and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. They decided to make an agreement because of all this, because of all the sin, because of all of our sin of, and our sin of our fathers, uh, yet in light of your great forgiveness, uh, Lord God, and your promises, we're going to make an agreement to obey you in writing. And they do so, and they do so. And within that agreement, then the people agree to it also. And we're going to take a look again, at this portion. So how can we know if we've truly repented? Uh, we're going to look at, again, the fruit that we should have. I want to go back to 938, which I just read here, and we're going to read back a little bit and then read into our passage, okay? 938, now because of all this, and, and I, I did tell you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah, so hopefully you're there, Nehemiah chapter 10, but we're going to back up a little bit. Now because of all this, we're making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our, le- of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now, on the sealed document were the names of, and then we have here, uh, Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the people and the rest of the people we'll see in a moment. I'm not going to read all those names. We read them last time. If you want to hear those names, feel free to get that uh, sermon, all right? But, uh, and then if you go down to um, verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands uh, to the law of God, uh, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, and all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And now our passage, which continues what we've been looking at. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forgo the crops on the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a, of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the, among the priests, the Levites, and the people in order that they might bring it to the house of, of our God according to our father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law in order that we might bring the first fruits of the ground and of the first fruits of the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and and our flocks as is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God we will also bring the first of our dough our contributions the fruit of every tree the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God 
and the tithe of the ground to the Levites, our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are those who received the tithes in all the rural towns. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. Now there's a lot of stuff there, but it comes down to us. We're going to see this idea of neglecting the house of our God. And as we read through this, I think you probably noticed that term, the house of our God, nine times, the house of our God. So with that in mind, how do we know if we've genuinely repented? Well, let's back up and come into where we just read right here from where we've been in our last time together. Again, I mentioned after confessing their sins, they made an agreement. Chapter 9, verse uh, verse 38, they made an agreement to obey And then they had the names of all the leaders on that document, and we had those names. And then we see in verse 28 that the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of their God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, we see that, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and taking on themselves a curse and an oath. The curse would be obviously the curse that we see in Deuteronomy 28 to 30, that if we don't obey, let you do what you say, Lord God. We'll, we, we expect you to discipline us this way if we don't do what we say. And then to obey. You know, one thing, when you're humble before the Lord, you recognize, first of all, you deserve what you're getting in your discipline, but you also recognize that if I, if I stray again, I deserve to get it again. I deserve to get what you have said will come upon me. And we think through those things clearly. And then he says here, and then he says, they're joining their kids, and we see that, an agreement to do something. They're taking on an oath, and they're joining to do this. And you remember what we saw, what we saw they were doing, to walk, middle of 20, 28, to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant. We're taking on an oath and a curse to, to obey God, to obey his word. To obey his word, God's law. And then also to live a lifestyle, to, to walk in his to live a lifestyle of, of obedience to God's word. We're going to walk in his word. And you think about it, if you're a believer and you're following the Lord, you're walking in his word. You're thinking about him, you're thinking about his word, you're walking with him, you're walking in his word. And then also notice, after that end of 29, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God our, our Lord, and his ordinances and statutes to keep these things. We, we're going to walk in his law. We're making a commitment to keep his, his ordinances and statutes. We're going to obey him. We're going to obey him. And folks, this is the heart of understanding if you've truly repented. There is a commitment to obey God, and specifically, as we'll see, where you have failed. I want to obey you in everything, but specifically, as we're going to see, there are areas that I have failed that I'm committing to obeying it. Now, we looked at uh, the idea of oaths and things like that last time. You can look at that concerning what Jesus says 
Um, and is it wrong to make an oath or not? Well, it's wrong to make false oath. It's wrong to make commitments you can't keep, certainly in that sense. But we make commitments all the time. As we, we, we make commitments when we buy a house or a car or whatever. We're, we're agreeing to something. And here, they're agreeing, hey, we're going to obey the Lord. We're going to obey the Lord. And if you're really serious, you're going to step out and actually do the right thing. You know, you're confessing sin and confessing sin, Lord, help me, help me, but you never step out and do the right thing, then you're not really there yet. You're not really there yet. You see, if you're truly repentant, you're going to step up. There's going to be fruit of repentance. There's going to be fruit of repentance. You're going to step out. You see, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, through his precious and magnificent promises, Second Peter chapter 1. As we step out, he enables us by faith to then obey him in what we desire and are committed to do. But you need to make a decision. You know, we decide to sin. You know that we do. We decide to sin. We need to decide to obey, to obey. We've been given everything. We know uh, very clearly that his grace is sufficient. His power is perfected in weakness. He will enable us to do so, but it comes on the heels of the renewed mind that then proves what his will is. You know, Paul would tell the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind that you may prove or demonstrate, do, you may prove what his will is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The reality is God's word working in the life of a believer who's desiring to do what's right, fully repent, it's going to manifest in obedience. Remember what we saw in Ephesians. Uh, take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. You know, it's not simply just an Old Testament thing we're seeing here in Nehemiah. Seeing in Nehemiah, it's all right, Hillary. Ephesians, Ephesians 4, um, chapter 4. And we have here, if you go to verse 20, verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, holiness of the truth." And so you renew your heart and mind with the truth of God and you put on the new man, but therefore that should cause you to behave differently. Therefore, notice what it says, laying aside falsehood. Okay, I'm going to set aside sin. I'm not going to sin. I'm in that area in the context of a renewed mind and a relationship with the Lord where I'm trusting him. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let that happen. Obey God. Make the commitment. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it over to you, Lord. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer. That's behavior. Stop stealing. Stop doing it. Um, but rather, the positive side, let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he might have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Uh, stop those unwholesome words, except that which is for edification. It says here, this was good for edification according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear. Stop speaking in a way that doesn't give grace to people. 
undeserved favor. We need to think of it. These should be convictions. If you're going, oh, man, I, I want to do that, Lord. I'm sorry. I haven't done that. I want to be gracious in my speech towards my spouse, towards my boss, towards my kids. Help me do that. Help me speak graciously. Undeserved speech. Undeserved speech that's kind and, 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 and merciful. He says here, and, and he says here, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by, of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you. Get rid of it. Stop it. So there's one thing to say, okay, I've, I, I realize this is wrong. God's renewing my heart and mind. I realize it. But there's another thing to actually step out and be committed to stopping those things, to stop doing it. Stop doing it. And instead here, uh, and be kind along with, um, from you and along with all malice, and be kind to one another. Okay, I want to obey you, Lord. I'm going to be kind. Step out in obedience. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And you might say, that's impossible. I can't do it. Yes, you can't do it if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. But if you have a relationship with Jesus, you can do everything he calls you to do. If you trust him and you step out in obedience, you trust him, he will enable you. doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we, we don't make mistakes. We do make mistakes. We're going to trip up, but we confess and we make, have the desire to obey and do what is right. And I mentioned in uh, Colossians chapter 3, and I'll read this for you. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality because we set our minds on Christ above or on things of earth. Impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which must be idolatry. For on account of these things, the wrath of God will come, and in them you once walked and you were living in them. But now you also... Put them also aside. So yes, I'm keeping the things above. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the things. But I'm also, within that, now making choices not to do what God says I shouldn't do. And I'm making choices to do what he says I should do by his power and strength. And so he says here, but now you also put them aside. Throw them off. Anger. Stop being angry. Uh, wrath. Malice. Slander. Abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the tr to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And we know from Romans chapter 6, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Therefore, since we're freed from sin, we don't have to offer ourselves to sin anymore. In Christ, I am freed from sin. I don't have to offer myself to sin. I can offer myself to him. And as a living sacrifice, I can offer myself to him in obedience. I'm going to obey you, Lord God. I want to obey you, and I trust you to enable me to do this. I believe you are powerful enough to enable me to love my husband or love my wife or to do whatever you've called me to do. I believe you are powerful. I trust you. I trust you. And so you've got to make the decision. And they made the decision. You see, if you are just a hearer of the word, something is wrong. Your relationship with Christ is not right. You may not know him, okay? But sometimes we become hearers and not doers, even as believers. We hear it, but we don't do it. We're not committed to, 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 to doing it. We're not seeing sin rightly. We saw this uh, uh, in terms of how we are to work out our salvation, right? We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for God's at work in us. We're to see sin rightly as God works out his life in us. 
And so then we see in the book of James, chapter 1, that therefore putting aside all malice, verse 21, and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted. Set aside sin, receive the word, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. You see, we're deluding ourselves if we are hearing the word and we're not doing what God says. We're deluding ourselves. And I believe when God has laid his heavy hand on you, like he did with David, like he's done with these Jews, and he has convicted you of sin and you have responded, you're going to be committed in your heart, not in some phony baloney promises, but committed, Lord, I want to obey you. I want to do what's right. But we need to identify those things. We need to identify where we have failed and step out and be determined. Yes, we'll trip up, but be determined to obey the Lord. And guaranteed, Satan's going to tempt you right in those areas right away the minute you're determined now, because you've got to trust Christ. If you step out on your own, yes, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to do what I'm going to, I'm going to follow your will and your ways. Well, if I'm not abiding in Christ and walking in him, I'm going to fail quickly. But as I trust him, he's going to enable me. So then, we need to recognize that so often when sin is overwhelming us, it's because we are unwilling to say no and do what is right. We're just unwilling. We're, we're, we're not willing to move past that. And that means we probably haven't been disciplined enough for the pressure to cause us to see, wow, Lord, this my life is messed up or these things are happening because of my sin and I don't want to do this anymore. I want to trust you and I want to obey you and I want to walk in your ways. You know, when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were committed. I'm, I am decided to follow Jesus. We're committed to obeying him. I mentioned the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. The Great Commission is to baptize and teach uh, that they would learn everything that Christ has said. They would obey everything he said. That's what our walk is right now. That's what sanctification is, learning to obey our Lord in those things. But you need to make the choice. You need to make the choice. And if you have, there's going to be, if there's real repentance, there's going to be fruit. And I shared these passages last time, but I want to share them again. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. And here, you know, uh, John the Baptist is uh, doing a baptism of repentance. It means people are coming out and identifying that they're repenting. They're, they're doing it with a visible symbol outwardly. And then the bad guys come. John knows, and inspired by the Spirit, they're not good guys. They're coming out just to fake it. And so he calls them about it. He calls them about this fake repentance. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying, if you're going to do this repentance, you're going to do this, this, uh, this here, there should be fruit that comes forth. He's going to say, you know why? Because the axe is at the tree. You think your relationship with, uh, with your father Abraham is going to save you. That's not going to save you at all. Uh, you are in deep trouble. And there should be fruit with true, genuine repentance. And then turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26, and this is um, 
This is the Apostle Paul after he has uh, shared his testimony with King Agrippa about that Damascus Road uh, salvation experience when he came, when Jesus Christ came to him and on the road. And we see here he is going to talk about basically what he is doing in light of that. Acts 26:19. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring to both those in Damascus first and those in Jerusalem that and through, there throughout the region, region of Judah and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That's interesting. This isn't a works salvation. It's not a works sanctification. It's a check. If you are truly repentant, if you have changed your mind truly about your behavior, you're not going to do it. You know, think about it. If I change my mind, and I've given this illustration before, I'm driving to Home Depot, and I change my mind that I want to go to Lowe's. Well, if I've changed my mind, I'm going to go to Lowe's, right? I'm going to act on a genuine change. And if I've changed my mind that I believe what I'm doing is very sinful and I now believe that, I see it rightly again, and I realize I need to do this instead, I'm going to do this instead. There's going to be fruit of repentance. Repentance. You know, whatever it is, you know, if it's lust or whatever it might be, repent, perform deeds appropriate. That means get away from those things. Don't put yourself in that area. Stop doing it, right? You, you treat your wife or husband like trash, repent, obey God's word in relationship to your spouse. You got a problem with conflict, stop before the dam bursts. But in everything, uh, let it be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Commit to doing that instead. And that instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the strength of the Lord. Remember, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We have to be abiding in him. But he enables us then to do his will. We become more and more like him. He lives his life out through us. And so we will never experience renewal in the Christian life until we're committed to obeying the Lord. You've got to be committed to obeying him. You're, you're, you know, If you're not committed to doing what's right, forget it. You're not going to do what's right. If you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it every time. The reality is you need to choose what you want to do and the desire and the way you want to go and then trust the Lord and step out in faith and do it. And again, it's not works. It's faith that works. It's completely by faith. It's completely trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you commit to being fully obedient to the Lord? Does Lord, I want to, desire, I want to obey you and step out in faith and, and obey him. These Jews were committing to do so. And now at this point, they began to share specific areas where they had failed, that they were going to change. So one thing to say, I'm going to obey you, Lord. Well, let's get specific. Where have I failed and where do I need to do what is right? Where do I need to do what is right? And you'll know last time we saw one of them when we stopped early. So we'll just briefly look at the first one. Then we'll go into the next uh, few uh, for the rest of our time. Notice here's the specific area in verse uh, 30, back in Nehemiah chapter 10. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. That's pretty specific. We're going to walk in the, your word, Lord God. We're going to obey your commandments. And we're not going to give our daughters to the Canaanites. And we're not going to take their, their, their people to marry us. right? We're not going to uh, allow, take their daughters for our sons. 
the first area here is intermarriage with the Canaanites. And he says, we're committed to not doing it anymore. We're not going to do it anymore. We're going to stop. Now, I mentioned this last time. It's not the issue of interracial marriage that's the issue. Moses had married a Midianite, and Ruth the Moabite was married to Boaz. The issue was these are non-believers who have exhibited their unbelief by not responding over the time that God gave them to repent while Israel was in the land. And we see that, that the, the, the sin of the Amorite was not full yet. And these are non-believers who will turn your heart from the Lord. And God warned them. God warned them, do not marry them. They will turn your heart from me to their gods. You remember what we saw uh, in uh, Exodus 34? Let's turn there. Because the principles, are, uh, they apply to yoking with the world, by the way. Yoke, tight yoking, whether it's friends close friendships, uh, your buddies, you know, we shouldn't be yoking ourselves with non-believers. We will become like them. Believe me, it's going to happen. You can be acquaintances. We're, we'd have to leave the world if we, if, we, uh, if, if we were separating, but we have to separate those relationships, those relationships where we're yoked. Exodus 34:11. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. This verse 12, Exodus 34. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their, tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cr- cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, is whose, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they, and they play the harlot with their gods, and, sacrif- and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invites you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take some of, notice this, his daughters for your sons, and his sons, or his daughters play the harlot, his daughters play the harlot with their God and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods. We know in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'll read this for you, verse 3. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. You shall not take their daughters for your sons. They had been disobeying this direct command. And they said, Lord, we're not going to do it anymore. We're not going to disobey. We're going to obey you. And if you have disobeyed God in specific areas... You need to say, Lord, I'm sinned in this area. I do not want to do this anymore. I want to obey you by doing what is right. I want to obey you. And so here he said, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. They will turn your hearts away. And I mentioned this, and I won't read it, but we know uh, from 1 Kings chapter 11, that Solomon's wives turned his heart away to other gods. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. Now Solomon was the wisest guy ever. So if you think you're so smart that you can disobey God's word and not be burned by it, uh, then think about this. And certainly we know that uh, you know if you walk, can a man's feet be uh, walking hot coals and not be burned, the reality is you're going to get burnt. So. They have chosen to do what is right. 
And we need to recognize we're not to be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15. Proverbs, the companion of fools will suffer harm. It just says that. It just That's just true. That's true. So then, they have made a choice. They have made a choice to do what is right. And I'm, I did talk last time about uh, those who had got saved when they were, when they were in a, two unbelievers got married, and then one of them got saved. How do you function in the context of that? First Corinthians 7, we have everything we need for life and godliness. That's clear what it says there. Uh, and also, I mentioned a lot of the reasons, biblically, uh, from negative examples from Scripture, why someone might want to marry an unbeliever. And it's a warning. It's a warning. You can get that message from the last time. So then, here in our passage, these Jews are truly repentant. They're committed no longer to giving their children to intermingle and marry marry with the people of the lands. And for us, we don't have arranged marriages, but parents need to be committed to teach their children the word of God that they would not make this horrible mistake, that they would understand the consequences so they committed to obeying God's word. And that brings us after a very long review, um, but it's all connected to our passage today in which we have some more areas that they are committed to obeying the Lord. Notice they decide to obey regarding their work and money. Another area, first relationships, now work and money. It's kind of all these things kind of come together as spheres in our lives that we all might have problems with. Indeed, the people commit not to buying from the Canaanites on the Sabbath holy day or holy days, and they, they commit to release the seventh-year crops and not extract debts. So, verse 31, As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or, or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And we will forego the crops of the seventh-year and the extraction of every debt. There's another commitment. A commitment. This has to do with their work and finances, and it has to do with trusting the Lord. Trusting the Lord. You see, the law was clear that they were to rest on the Sabbath day and on holy days. And evidently, they had found a little loophole where they could continue their business activities on the Sabbath, not with Jews but with the people of the land. And they could buy stuff on that day and do their, actually work on the Sabbath, in a sense, still do their business, do their business. And here we see uh, that they make the commitment that they would not do this anymore. They would not buy from the Canaanites, the peoples of the land, on the Sabbath. Now, later on in chapter 13, we're going to see that some of them fall back into this. And by the way, we sin, we fall back in, and we need to be convicted and repent and, and be determined to obey. But look at Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13. Not only were they buying from locals on the Sabbath, they were working on the Sabbath. Nehemiah 13, verse 15. And this is Nehemiah. He came back, and he's seen some bad stuff happen, and he's going to have to address it. Um, Nehemiah 13:15. In those days, I saw Judah. I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on a Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. On the day they sold food, also men of Tyre—that's the other people, the outsiders—were uh, living in there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold to the sons of Israel 
sons of Judah on a Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so our God brought on sorry so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? You are adding to the wealth you are adding to the wealth yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so uh, we have here uh, the the point there, and I want, want to remember that this might want you to remember that in the Old Testament there were these ceremonial laws, and they were a picture of God's holiness and how to approach Him. They're a picture of His righteousness, and all the uh, all the sacrifices, as we'll see a little later, pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the Sabbath day was a day of rest in which they had to trust. The Lord, which pointed to the fact that Christ is our Sabbath rest, Colossians chapter three, chapter two, and we have to trust in Him alone. He fulfills that. He is the Sabbath rest. He is our rest, salvation rest. And so you, these people were basically not trusting the Lord. They were doing business on the day they should have been resting. You have to trust the Lord. Hey, if it's one less day to work, you got to trust the Lord. He's going to provide in those other days. Right? And so it's a matter of faith and obedience. And so it's related. So they said, we're going to go ahead and do this. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to buy from them. We're not going to buy in these days. We're going we're to obey the word of God. We're going to obey the word of God. And then notice in the middle of verse 31, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year. Here, this is pretty significant. Again, it's a trust issue. And by the way, lots of people have problems with finances and trusting the Lord. And you step out and you do everything you got to do. You don't trust the Lord. Uh, we need to trust the Lord. We need to rely on him. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11, and then in Leviticus 25, 2, we have the principle of the Sabbath rest for the land. For every seven years, the Jews were not to... Uh, you take the crops of the land. They were to let the land rest. Let me read that passage, Exodus 23.10. And you shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield, Exodus 23.10, and verse 11. But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave the beast in the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. They were to let it rest. You trust the Lord, and, and God even used that to help provide for those who were in need. Now, if you figure out all the years that Israel was disobedient, it's 490 years, and there's, there's, that means they missed 70 Sabbath rests. They didn't do it. They never did it. And so God took them into exile, and he gave the land 70 years of rest. Very ironic. That's why they were out. So he gave it 70 years to make up for that, as we see in the discipline, another element of their exile and so here, they hadn't been letting it rest here, and they'd come back, and they realized, we are disobeying God. So in the first time in their history, basically, as a nation, they're going to give the land its rest according to the word of God. We're committed to doing that. And that means you've got to trust the Lord. If you're not getting your crops that year, you've got to trust the Lord to provide. Now, you're not unwise. Uh, Joseph, he put stuff away for the time that he wouldn't, that he wouldn't need it, you know, that, he, that God had made clear. 
but you need to trust the Lord. And so they're committing to obeying. In essence, they're saying, we trust you to provide for us, Lord, if we obey you. And that's where we need to be. And some of you may be financially not trusting the Lord. You need to trust. Now, it doesn't mean you're foolish. It doesn't mean you're foolish, but you need to trust the Lord that he's going to provide. He's going to provide. If you obey him, he's going to provide. Because you can add it all up. Boy, that seventh year is really going to help us out. That'll make our budget the way we need it, you know. And we're also got you know, got to do a little bit on Sunday because of the wares and this and that, you know. Now it was back then. We don't have restrictions now. The issue for us is a trust thing. It's a trust thing. We don't have the Sabbath that's been fulfilled, but it's a trust issue. It's a trust issue. And notice after that they say we will forego the extraction of every debt. End of verse 31. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, they were to release debts. They were to release them. They were not to hold on to them after the seventh year. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, let's turn there. Deuteronomy 15. And they weren't to extract interest from their neighbors. They weren't to do that. They were to, to, to treat them differently, right? Deuteronomy 15. So God has convicted them, and all of a sudden, all these areas are popping up. We sin here, we sin here, we sin here. And we're not going to do this anymore. When you're really repentant and God's disciplinary hand is working on you, you're going to go, oh, i got to stop that. No, it's no good. Nope, I want to obey you here. Yep, oh, this area too. Oh, this area too. You know what I'm saying? There's going to be a, a, a cleaning out, a cleaning house for renewal. Deuteronomy 15.1, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts, and this, and this is the manner of the, of the remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not extract it from his neighbor or and his brother because the, of the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. From a foreigner you may extract it, but you shall, but your hand shall release whatever is yours from with, yours is with your brother. This is Deuteronomy fifteen four now. However, there is there should be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord God, Lord your God, is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God and carefully, to carefully observe all his commandment, which I'm commanding you today. You know, sometimes we're not too careful to observe. We're pretty flimsy in, in our thinking. We just kind of let things go. I, you know, God says don't do something. We should be very careful if we're contemplating doing it. We should be very careful. But God is a gracious God. We do fail, we confess, and we move forward in obedience. So then they've made this commitment. They've made this commitment. But how does this apply to us? We're not under the law. We're under the, under the law. How does it apply to us? Yeah. So um, turn to Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For the reason, for this reason I say to you, you shall not be, do not be anxious for your life for, as to what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you worth? Are you not worth much more than they? And the point is, you've got to trust the Lord. He cares for you. He's going to provide for you. If you love money, you're not going to love God. If you love God, then you're going to trust him. You're going to trust him to provide. And he goes on, you know, that we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
Turn also to 1 Timothy, because not only should we be uh, trusting him to provide, and now he has means in which we provide. He tells us to go and to, to work, tells our men to provide for our families, right? But also, 1 Timothy chapter 6 talks about contentment. You see, if you're not content, you're going to go out and try to get what you need to get whenever you need to get it, rather than trust in the Lord. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to start with verse 6 here. But godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee these things. That's the lack of contentment and and the love of money, right? Uh, Flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take holy eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So is finances, are they controlling you? Uh, the reality is we need to trust the Lord and obey him, and he'll take care of us. And if you have been convicted, say, Lord, no more. I, I, I commit to trusting you. I commit to relying on you. I'm not going to seek uh, forth, uh, try to gain wealth. Uh, the Bible says do not worry yourself to gain wealth. Don't even set your mind on it. Don't even do it. You know, And so make that commitment to obey the Lord to obey the Lord and not worry about finances, but to trust the Lord. And now if you're, going to, if you're obedient in other areas, such as the work he puts before you, he's going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. And even if that doesn't work out, God will provide. He provides for those who are in need. He's faithful. He's faithful. So then we have two areas so far. One, relationship. Second, money. Then notice the third area that they commit to walking in obedience to, which is that they are going to no longer neglect the house of the Lord their God. And we're going to see primarily that neglect has to do with financial, financial neglect, taking care of the needs of the body of Christ, as we'll see in the New Testament, here, the temple in the Old Testament, and those who are serving within it, those who are serving within it. Now, as I read, as I read those verses earlier, 32 through 39, uh, Remember what I pointed out, there was said nine times, the house of the Lord our God, right? The house of the Lord our God. It's, it's, it's our Lord's house, right? It's our God's house. We, we're, he's our God and it's his, it's his house. Now, as I mentioned before, again, the old covenant sacrificial system, which we're going to see in this portion here, this all has to do with a lot of those things. Provisions for uh, the temple worship and the sacrificial system. We are no longer under that. That was a shadow that points. We were never under it, but the Jews were under it. It's a shadow that points to the reality that Christ fulfilled. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we're not going to be obeying these specific things, but there are principles that we can draw from this specifically. But before we go there, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 because Hebrews chapter 10 helps us understand how all these things that they're speaking of here were shadows and they were fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. Hebrews chapter 10. 
For in the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, there you go, it's not, not the reality, it's just a shadow, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, uh, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. He's saying those sacrifices never could cleanse anyone. They could never bring forgiveness. They could never make them perfect. Otherwise, they would not. They would have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, once having been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin, of consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, "Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me." In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, and this is the, the Son of God, Behold, I have come to do, behold, I have come in the role of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that's the first covenant, in order to establish the second, that's the new covenant. By this will, that's Jesus coming and doing the Father's will, dying for us and going to the cross. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's once for all. And so these things that we're going to read about back in our passage... Uh, they have to do with the old sacrificial system. But the principle remains that God had instituted that system as a shadow to point to the reality in Christ, but there were things that needed to be done, and people were told they were to aid in these things and participate, and they had not done so. And they're acknowledging, we're no longer going to neglect the house of our Lord. That's really the key thing, neglecting the house of Lord our God. So let's take a look back in, in uh, Nehemiah. He says, we also placed ourselves, verse 32, under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of the Lord our God. We have the house of the Lord our God, and they are committing to obey. And if you look at verse 39, the very end it says, therefore we will not neglect the house of our God. We're not going to neglect it. And that word neglect speaks of leaving. It's translated forsake. We're not going to forsake God's house. That would be the temple and the sacrificial system that's done in the temple. We're going to see. And by the way, the first thing that gets forsaken uh, when believers are walking in sin is God's house. And what do I mean by that? Now it's the church. It's his people. And when we gather together to minister to one another, to serve uh, the apostles were, in the early church, were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. We're not to forsake our assembling together, as some have made it their habit, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're not to s- separate and seek our own desires. We're actually to provide for, as we're going to see today, the operation of the body of Christ and those who are ministering. In the New Testament, we're not to forsake that. And so we'll see that principle here as we look at our passage So here, we're going to see that much of it has to do with providing financial contributions for the functioning and operation of the temple and for the Levites to take care of them according to the law, which had been rejected. They had rejected that. 
I can tell you right now, uh, if you're not giving, and we'll see this, from a right heart to the Lord's work on a continual basis, as we'll see from the first fruits, your heart probably is not right with the Lord. Some of the first things that slip by is giving to the Lord or being around his people. The things of, if you're not giving, I'm not talking about out of compulsion because I'm telling you that you need to be giving. I'm talking about a heart that is changed. You know, when I came to faith, I immediately started giving. I didn't need anyone to tell me. Now, sometimes we do need to be instructed. There's other areas I needed to be instructed in. But uh, the reality is we should have a heart to give back to the Lord, as we're going to see, as we're going to see, uh, they were actually commanded to there. But they were commanded to do it from a right heart. From a right heart. So then, they were convicted, specifically, that they were not, that they had forsaken the house of the Lord. And specifically, as we'll see, uh, this idea of giving to it and providing for it. Look at verse 32. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, for the, the Sabbath, the new moon, the appointed times, uh, for the holy things, uh, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We're committed to uh, giving that money. In Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 16, God made it clear that everyone who was numbered among the people of Israel were to give a certain amount here. They were to give a specific amount. It's in the law. They were to give it. God even specified what it was and what it was for. It was for the operation of the service of the Lord in the temple and in the context of that for those who would be serving in that. In that. And we see that. And if you look at Exodus 30, you don't need to look there now, but you can look there later, verses 13 and 15, we have this phrase, as a contribution to the Lord. When you give to the church, you're giving to God. You're not giving. Now, God will use that to accomplish his purposes, which he will state in his word he's going to do. As we'll see, provide for the needs of those ministering. Provide for those in need. Provide for the needs of the ministry and the operation of the ministry, as we say. So then, when you give to the work of the ministry, the Lord's church, you're given to the Lord. You're given to the Lord. We'll see that in a moment. We'll see that. And so they had neglected the service of the house, but they are making a commitment. We're going we're gonna to give like we're supposed to. We're going to give like we're supposed to. They were under a covenant, remember. Then look at verse 34. They also gave not only their finances, they gave of themselves. They gave their time. Some people just write the check and they're never around. You know, that's uh, the reality is we give of ourselves too. Notice here, likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites and the people, in order that they might bring it to the house of our God, and remember, house of our God, uh, according to our father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. So they cast lots to bring wood. Now, if you had everybody bringing wood, there'd be too much wood. They don't need that much wood, but it's for the sacrifices. So they cast lots of who would be doing that, that service of bringing that wood to the temple. So they cast lots to do so. We're going to obey the Lord. We're going to help the functioning of the temple. We're going to do that like we should have. Then notice they gave of the first fruits. Look at verse 35. And in order that they might bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of the tree, to the house of the Lord annually. 
We see this in Leviticus 24, 5 and 6, Exodus 23, 19, Exodus 34, 26, that they were to give of the first fruits. The first, that's the best. That's the best and the first of the harvest. They were to give of that. Then look at verse 36. And to bring to the house of, the, of our God the firstborn of our sons, our ca- of our cattle, the firstborn of our herds and the flocks, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of of our God. So they were to bring the firstborn. Obviously, they were to have the firstborns that opened the womb. We see that in the law. They were to be brought there, and, 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 and they were. Then we have certainly those animals firstborn they were to bring. Exodus 13 1, we see the first fruits belong to the Lord, man and beast. You're, you're, you're acknowledging it's His. It's His. It's His. And notice we have the idea of the first and best continuing, verse 37. We'll also bring the first of our dough. We call it dough money, right? But that was their dough. That was their their uh, their actual bread dough. Our contributions, the first of every fruit of every tree, the new wine, the oil to the priest and at the chambers, the house of our God. We see this in Leviticus 23.17 and 27.30. And then notice there's an acknowledgement they're going to obey the word. It continues. Look at the middle of verse 37. And the tithe of the ground to the Levites. This was the tithe of the ground. This was giving the, the, the provision for the Levites to function. The Levites didn't work. They worked in the temple, and so they were given provision to function. Uh, for the Levites who are to receive the tithes in all the rural towns, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house. Even they're tithing on the tithes they're getting, right? Levites are going to bring a tenth of what they get, Right? to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, the new wine, oil, to the chambers there. Chambers, there are utensils of the sanctuary, the priests are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. And so here we see, prescribed by the law, they were to bring those things which provided for the Levites. And the Levites were to be giving a tenth of that to the Lord, as we see, and to provide for the operation of the temple and all that is done there. And so here we have this statement, thus we will not neglect the house of our God. They had neglected it. They had neglected what God's word had said they should be doing. They had neglected it. And they're committing, no, we're not going to neglect anymore. We're going to do these very specific things. Very specific things we're going to do in obedience. We're going to do in obedience. And there are some principles here. We're not under the law, but there's some principles. And we have in the New Testament, for those of us in the church, we're all in the church and for believers, right? Let me just share some of those briefly. First of all, when your heart is right, you're going to want to give for the functioning of the needs of the body of Christ. That's the church. Your heart's right. You're going to want to do so. There's a principle here, right? It's not going to be out of compulsion. You're also going to want to give for those who are in need. Now, the leaders are going to help you know who's in need. They're going to let you know. Paul let them know there was a need in Jerusalem. There was a need in Jerusalem. Uh, the elders were the people they dropped the, the, the uh, contributions at in the early acts, and they distributed it to those who were in need. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And these are New Testament principles for us. Because we're not under the law. And if you're wondering about what you should be giving, you know, the Old Testament has that principle of a, of a tenth of tithes. You know, and there was more tithes than just one, by the way. It was more than a tenth. 
you know, that's a good starting point. God doesn't tell you in the New Testament specifically. He tells you to have the right heart. And he tells you to be give actually generously and, and not sparingly. You know, so that implies even more from my perspective. But it's a good place to start. It's a good number to, for just to think about, something to pray about. First Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so all, do all, you also. On the first day of every week, that would be Sunday, by the way, the first day of every week, that's when they meet, let each of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collection be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you approve, I shall send them with letters uh, to carry your gift to Jerusalem. That's where we get our practice in a sense of the first day of the week. That's there. But then go to Second um, Corinthians chapter 9, because this really helps us. You see, the Corinthians, and we're going through this, and we'll get to this, they were... Uh, they had been soured towards Paul. And they had made a commitment to give to this situation in Jerusalem, believers. And they got soured towards Paul because of false teachers, so they, they, didn't, they, they weren't going to do it anymore. They kind of said, forget it. And so Paul had to woo them, in a sense, to back to their first commitment and the reasons why they committed righteously in the Lord, that they would do from the right heart and give. Do from the right heart. And this is part of his exhortation. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Now this I say, he, or verse 6, let's go to verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. Here's a principle for giving, by the way. If you're a chintzy giver, God's telling you here's how it's going to work. Okay? Sow sparingly shall reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. This is not a give-to-get situation like the TBN hucksters. It just means you should have a heart to be generous, and God will take care of you. And he'll actually give you abundance, we'll see later on, to actually give more. To give more. It says here, let each one do as he is purposed in his own heart. So you make a choice, you purpose. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's the heart attitude. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having sufficiency in everything you may have. Sorry, i got a reflection here. It's reflecting on my thing here. Hard to see it. You may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. See, God is able to make grace abound. Grace abound. Uh, Give you the money to do it. And he says here, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. This is the context of giving, by the way. Your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Very interesting. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And he says, for the, for the ministry of service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. It brings thanks to God. It says, because of the proof given to the, by this ministry that they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you, for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, God gave the greatest gift ever, his son Jesus. And he even ties it into this idea of graciousness in giving. Graciousness. So then, we see, uh, and I hear people say, oh, I, sh- I don't want to give out a compulsion. Uh, but they never quote the rest of the passage, which 
which reveals that, you know, uh, he who sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So then, if you're a chintzy giver and you lean on your own understanding, work it all out so that it's just that it's all mechanicalized, it's not from a heart that's of gratitude, um, then it reveals a lack of faith and you're going to reap sparingly. But if you're a gracious giver in the Lord and God knows how much you need to give, he knows, he'll prompt you in terms of what you should be giving. He'll give you your heart to help him for whatever, not help him, but to, to know what, his, what he desires you to do. So then, first of all, we don't give out a compulsion. Secondly, uh, we should give the first and the best. We should not give the leftovers. Proverbs chapter 3, honor the Lord from your wealth. That's a command, by the way. And from the first of all your produce, so that your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. Just out of, personally for me, you know, when the Lord blesses me with a paycheck, when he blesses me with the sale of a house, he blesses me with whatever it might be. It just in my heart, I want to give back to him. I want to give back to him what he's given to me. I want to give back, and that's a desire because he's given it all to me. It's, it's an act of faith. It's an act of trust. It's an act of love, and as we'll see, it's an act of worship. It's an act of worship, whatever it might be. And so look at that for Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4.15. Sorry, we're going a little late here, but... Uh, and you yourselves know, Philippians 4.15, at the first, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed Macedonia, no church shared with me the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which it increases to your account. Very interesting spiritual math here. But I have received everything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Notice what he says. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We give the first and the best. It's an act of worship. We give the first and the best to the Lord. And Paul says, I don't seek the gift, but what it profits on your account. Um, just a few quick passages here. Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Uh, they will pour, in your lap, pour into your lap, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Matthew 6.2, when you therefore present alms, give alms, do not sound the trumpet like the hypocrites. He goes on that when you do it, uh, he says, your own should be in secret, that your Father in heaven will repay you in secret. Matthew 6:19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So we have principles here. Give the best. It's worship. Um, it's not out of compulsion. And one more principle, which goes with what we're seeing here, it's uh, the reality that God uses it to provide for the needs of those who are ministering in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let's look at that real quick. 1 Corinthians 9. Sorry, I got a glare from the light. I'm going to move this back here. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 6, 
Or do not Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because of the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we shall reap material things from you? There's a principle. Paul says, hey, I don't have to work in that context because I'm working, and we should receive that from the body of Christ. We see this also in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor. That's double pay, and that's what it says here. Especially those who work hard on preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And I read earlier during our time uh, uh, for our worship prayer um, that... uh, Paul writes the Galatians, he says, And let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Galatians uh, 6, 6. Share with him who teaches. If you're taught the word, share with the one who teaches you. Now, I'm not saying this to to try and get money from you guys. It always bothers me when I show these passages because I don't want you to think wrongly of me, but this is what God's word says. He says, Do not be deceived. We always quote this verse, but we don't see it in the context of giving to the support of the body of Christ. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. We see that. You can sow to your flesh or to the spirit. So then we have these principles for us. Not out of compulsion. uh, Should be giving the best and first and foremost. Should support the ministry. Should be for the help of people. And should be an act of worship. An act of worship. Paul said what they were given was well-pleasing. It was a fragrant aroma, Philippians chapter 4. And so we need to do that by faith. The possible to please God apart from faith. We trust him. And we're giving back just a small amount. We realize everything we have is from him. And we know that there's not one thing we have that he hasn't given us that's good. So then, back to our passage. We have these Jews who have repented, and one of the fruits of their repentance in a specific area is committing to do what's right in regards to the to the house of the Lord. And maybe there's some of you today who have forsaken the house of the Lord. You know you have not been serving as you should. You know you haven't been around the body of Christ as you should. You know you haven't been giving as you really should from a right heart. Maybe today's the day to deal with that, confess it, and make a commitment to do what is right. To do what is right. Are you neglecting the church of the Lord your God? Well, a fruit of repentance would be acknowledging that. Acknowledging that. You see, when you're in sin and you get right with the Lord, you want to be around the body of Christ. You want to, you want to give. You want, all these things are just natural in a right heart. Natural in a right heart. So then, we've seen these Jews committed to walking in obedience to God's word, specifically in the areas where they have failed. Regarding relationships, regarding work and money, and regarding supporting the work of God's work and workers. And next time we'll see one more area, which is where do we live? 
is it where God wants us to live? We'll see that next time. So how about you? How about you? Is there any area where you need to say, Lord God, I failed here and I'm committed to doing what's right. I want to do the right thing. It's going to be a fruit that you're really repentant if you're willing to obey and desire to obey and then step out and do so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much. And Lord, we do fail. And Lord, yet we want to obey you. We want to walk in your ways, Lord God. And so help us to obey you. Help us to step out in obedience, to be committed uh, to obeying you in our relationships, committed to obeying you in our work and finances, committed to obeying you in the body of Christ. Lord, in any areas we have failed, may we truly repent and may we truly step out in obedience, Lord God. So I thank you for your word and I thank you for the obedience of these Jews in Nehemiah's time. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.